East. It's another episode of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. She's Courtney Nguyen. Happy Roadshow number two, Courtney. Roadshow! How are you enjoying our drive this time? It's good. We didn't stop in Wheeling, so that no. was nice. Um, hasn't been weird. Ate at a Chick-fil-A in a mall uh-huh. on top of a mountain. Yeah. So that happened. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, it's been moving, it seems like, at a quick clip. Yeah. Listen to a couple podcasts. Listen to the entire Pink music catalog. Tennis, <laughs> tennis-wise, a really good podcast on the BBC. This Desert Island Discs podcast with Judy Murray. If you're interested in anything involving anybody Murray, it's a good listen. Solid half hour ish of, of entertainment. It is, and she's got some good songs on there. Some you wouldn't expect, um, but yeah, some you, you can would. download I predict, it. Some you would. I predict the Proclaimers very early you did, on. And, and I the was Bay City right. Rollers wasn't the surprise either. No. But um, yeah, it was. I, I thought it was a surprisingly good. I thought it was going to be a throwaway. Like stupid, very substantive. It was very substantive. Like she says, actually, a lot of stuff I didn't know before. She kind of talks a bit about like the whole Scotland stuff and um, yeah, just what it was like being the mother of Andy and Jamie Murray, and uh, it was good. So we can only aspire to be equally substantive on this show. We will fall flat on our faces in that attempt, but we're gonna try. So much splat. And try is all we can do. Uh, We have a couple weeks to recap here. We haven't done a show since midway through the Canadian Open. So we are going to talk about Canada and Cincinnati and then look a little bit forward to the U.S. Open. Uh, Let's do it. Courtney, what will you remember most about the Rogers Cups? Or I should say the Rogers Cup slash Coupe Roger. (laughs) The Coupe Roger. Um, I think the biggest takeaway for me was probably... Venus, uh-huh. maybe I, I guess. Would agree. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, I think that that her run um, in Montreal was was really quite something, and I think that it's one of those runs that, even more so than Dubai, uh, makes you believe that that there's something there, that there's a that there is more for Venus to contribute, not just from a like oh you're my spirit animal kind of way, like you know almost in a patronizing way that people kind of talk about Venus it sometimes. It was. It's a lot, you know, her press conferences and just the way, the language and the way that people talk and write about her is like, oh, you're so great. You're so brave. Like, you win by just showing up. And yeah. I feel like having been in those press conferences with Venus, I can definitely see her, like, take offense to that. She doesn't buy it. She doesn't buy it. She doesn't really have that whole, like, I... She, on one hand, she doesn't have the whole, I just want everybody to treat me like I'm a professional athlete who doesn't have an illness because she's kind of like, I am a professional athlete that has an illness and to ignore that would be completely unfair to me. But at the same time, like she's not somebody who wants kudos for being in the top 20. Yeah. Or maybe not top 20, but she doesn't want to be like, oh, wow, you want a first round match against... Uh, insert name Vogelay. You know, good for you. And you're so old. Aren't you just the quaintest little thing? Yeah. You out there with your bonnet and your walker, still beating these young European gals. Tremendous. Like she doesn't want that. She's Venus, as as Arena Spirlea once said about her. She thinks she's the fucking Venus Williams, and she is and the she fucking is. Venus Williams. And she is, and she still won seven Grand Slams, and still has gotten a lot of good wins during this stretch. It's been spaced out with some pretty um, bad losses along the way. And take the good with the bad, but this was a lot of good in Montreal. It was more consistent good than we've seen from her in one week. I mean, in Dubai, she didn't beat the caliber of opponents she beat in Montreal. She beat 
uh, Kerber. She beat Suarez Navarro. She beat Serena. And Serena was playing well. That was Serena. The, yeah. That, that was not. A, that was not a. Uh, any sort of tank situation whatsoever. Right, you and, and begin to say that. And one of the best of all of their matches. Yeah. One of the best Venus versus Serena matches in the history of their rivalry. Just played at a really high quality. No drama. No. It was just a tennis match between two incredibly skilled tennis players who were hungry. Hungry. Who are sisters? Who are in their thirties and who are still dominating the game. Number one. Number two. Americans like. 20 years after whatever they ever like hit the pro circuit I mean that is a pretty freaking incredible story and so yeah I mean I I think that was great for Venus and if anything it makes me think and hope that she has something in the tank for a very deep run of the US Open and that's totally true I really think that rivalry that match was one of their best just to focus back on that Williams sister battle because it did get a lot of attention rightly during the Canada week. Uh, the other ones that pop out at me is the best ones. There was an 08 quarterfinal at the U.S. Open, which was spectacular. Uh, Serena won 7-6, 7-6, and then won the title. That really felt like a de facto final that year, because I think then, after that, she had to beat uh, Denara and Yankovic, which are not, you know, gimmies, but they were not... Well, All respect, not the toughest run. Denara was not, was not very tough that year, but Yankovic was decently tough. Um, and then, yeah, and the other ones, the uh, 03 Australian Open, 03 Wimbledon wasn't bad. Uh, those both, both finals. 08, uh, US, uh, sorry, 08 Wimbledon was not bad either. I mean, yeah, they've had some good, but they also had some bad, and this one was definitely good. And good one, you didn't really have a right to expect it. With yeah. all of Venus's problems with uh, back to back matches, she had played some back to backs already in Canada, and uh, was we were very ready for her to run out of gas. Maybe that happened a little bit in the final against Radwanska. But overall, nothing to be ashamed of for Venus. She's back in the top 20, back to American number two, and really can go into the U.S. Open. Like, if she gets the right draw, and there's no reason why she can't... There's no one she can't beat. And I wouldn't say... I've said that about Venus at all three weeks ago. I don't think so. Serena included. I mean, she already proved she could beat Serena, and Serena's the best. So if she can beat Serena, who can't she beat? True. Yep, yep. I mean, she definitely caught Serena on a bad day. Um, like not a bad poor day, but like a not great day for Serena. Like a B minus day. For yeah, Serena. she wasn't serving well, Serena, and she wasn't serving the way that she did this last week in Cincinnati, where everything seemed to really click for Serena. Um, you know, I, I think that it was really telling. She obviously won Cincinnati, beat Anna Vonovich in straight sets in the final six four six one. But I, I thought it was really interesting to hear her say in her post-match press conference that when she won Stanford, yeah, she won it, but she didn't think that she was playing at a level that could win the U.S. Open. Um, You know, it wasn't her highest level. So there was a little bit of a, you know, not her confidence wasn't where it was two weeks ago, title or no title. Um, And then the same in in Montreal, you know, losing to Venus. And then she was definitely, I think, frustrated by that loss and and pissed off to lose that match. So in Cincinnati, uh, you know, she goes through. It wasn't necessarily an easy draw for her. Um, Some tricky opponents in there. But at the end of the day, she took care of business, took, got, taken a three sets by Caroline Wozniacki for the second time in two weeks, won that match anyway. And really, I think in that match, the serve really came alive and, and she started to hit the gun. I've been watching gun, the speed gun on Serena uh, in Stanford when I was in Stanford and then and then now in, in Cincinnati. And I was really just surprised at Stanford given how quick that court is and how quick that ball can move through the air there. I mean, that is a tournament where Lisicki bombed that whatever, 120... 131. 131. So... Yeah, I was really surprised that Serena wasn't really tagging the gun very, very much. I mean, she was getting at 117 
118, maybe 119 is where she maxed out uh, in Stanford. In Cincinnati, and that, those were like one-offs. And then in Cincinnati, saw her, you know, pretty regularly clearing 120. Low mid 120. Yeah, yeah. So that's when I was kind of like, okay, she's she's going big. And finally, in the final, she played what was she says her best performance of the summer hard courts and quite possibly the best performance of the her entire year really in that match against a quality opponent served 12 aces made on Ivanovich feel like a bystander um through most of the match so she said afterwards now I'm playing this is if I play at this level I can win the open and for her to say that after three weeks of saying I don't feel any pressure I'm you know I, I don't think I'm gonna do much or I don't care I'm just like, relaxed I'm just relaxed I'm just now relaxed. I think she has expectations for herself which yeah. is a very different beast dangerous thing just to sort of finish that thread before we look back more at this sort of fortnight for the women Courtney, Serena versus the field going into the U.S. Open. Do you think with Serena, what she's shown over these three weeks and playing three weeks in a row, pretty rare for her. Would you take, do you think Serena's put herself to be back in that sort of Serena versus the field conversation? Because based on this year's major results, that would seem like a ridiculous statement. I mean, the field has knocked Serena out before the quarterfinals every time. <laughs> um, but can she be considered a real juggernaut? And to answer my question first, they don't always pin things on you. I'll say absolutely. What she did uh, in that Cincinnati final, she carries anywhere near that form into the U.S. Open. It's tough to derail her. And the U.S. Open, she hasn't had bad losses there, really, in her career that I am that I can think of. I mean, Serena has gone deep regularly. I mean, her last few results, she won the last two years. Before that, she made the final loss to Stoser. Before that, she missed it with her foot injury. Before that, she lost in the semis, infamous semi to Kleister. Before that, she won it. I mean, this is a tournament that, because of the American spotlight, whatever, she's always really brought her A game. Her She knows the spotlight's on her, and she really has risen to the occasion. So I would pick Serena against the field right now. How about you? I will be the contrarian then. Okay. Um, Only to be a contrarian or because you actually No, I mean, I, I think that, okay, this is why. Because we've been in this situation before. Yeah. You know, she won Brisbane, like, emphatically the beginning of the season. Looked fantastic. Looked like she was carrying everything through. And that's when she was probably, I mean, I would think in her most confident. And she, you know, her body fails her and she loses to Ivanovich um, in Australia in at the French Open. Had gone through, had a great clay season. One Rome. Um, one Rome. Um, and uh, and then takes that loss, uh, you know, and then Wimbledon, a tournament that she should be playing well at. It's always grass. Her game should translate. Loses early. So we've been in this situation before, and three times this year, she's kind of, you know, fallen short. And one of the things that is in the back of my mind that I am concerned about is the three weeks of play. It's a lot of matches, and she kept saying, you know, these are I'm not used to playing this many matches because she's been losing early in tournaments all the time, which is what the joke was. Yeah. But it's true. And then by the time by the time Cincinnati ended, she had her back strapped. Yeah. She was she she said that she needed three hours of treatment after the semifinal to get ready for the final. That's not good news. That's not good news. It's a back back injuries don't just like heal overnight. Um, you know, obviously at the majors, it's a little bit easier because you do have the day off between uh, between matches, and she will obviously have this week off as well. But you know, those sorts of injuries, especially when you're older, you know, they 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 have this. You know, it puts you behind the eight ball. You know, you, your body doesn't recover as quickly, um, and you're going into an into the tournament not a hundred percent. Even if you do feel great in your first match, your body's still not hundred percent. Like it, yeah. it hasn't you know, uh, recovered. 
so so that's why I do think that there is there is a chance for 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 an early not necessarily an early upset but as we've said I think numerous times on this podcast Serena is vulnerable in the first week of a major yeah, for sure. so if there's going to be an upset it'll be early in my opinion but uh but yeah I mean I agree with Ben I mean if she plays the way that she played in that Cincy final through seven matches no one beats her no one touches her no one touches her does yeah. she doesn't drop a set Completely agree. Let's talk about some of the other women who made some headlines during these two weeks. We should start with Agnes Redwanska, who we have not mentioned yet. She won Canada. Didn't really beat a murderer's row who wanted to do it. I think Venus did a lot of the hard work for her along the way. Uh, Redwanska beat Lisicki, Makarova, and Venus to win it. And Venus, like we said, was a little bit tired early. Uh, Redwanska is going to be the number four seed at the U.S. Open, despite not having a very flashy year on any level, despite that was her first title there. Uh, she's maintained a high ranking. Is she somebody who should be considered? What do you make of her run here? Is it just sort of her vulturing, as people say sometimes, or is it anything significant for what we can project towards her breaking through and becoming a first-time slam winner, or even making another semi or final? I don't think that, for me personally, I don't think that the the, the win in Montreal changes how I see Agnieszka Radvanska. Okay. I think that she's always going to be a player that's there that that will contend in, to the extent that she's going to make it past the fourth round and be there. And at, then at that point, you reset the draw and you look at who she'd have to beat to win the title. And right. if the draws break her way then and, and makes it a little bit easier for her, then she has an opportunity. We saw that at Wimbledon. We saw that, you know, at the Aussie Open earlier this year, and she didn't take advantage. But there have been situations where she's putting herself in, in good positions. You know, Indian Wells made the final there. So she she has the ability to do it. Um, I think that, obviously, the win does help her confidence. I think that when you and I talked to her this week in Cincinnati, she kind of had that, that, that sparkle back yeah, in, you know? Yeah, she was swaggy. Yeah, Swaggery. she was a little swaggy. You know, she ended up losing to Caroline, but... Um, but it was, you know, it was, it was, it was not a bad match, and, and the way that Caroline's playing, not a bad loss. So things have to break Redvanska's way. Um, but I would love to see her in a position where things have broken her way, and this time she actually takes advantage of it, as opposed to like basically choking. Yeah, and that's the thing. She's had these looks before in Slam. She's had opportunities for the draw to open up. I mean, Australia was a big one this year. She got to the semis against Sipulkova and obviously was emotionally drained after being as a rank. We talked about this before, but then flopped against uh, Sipulkova in a very winnable semi where she was a huge favorite. And then also Wimbledon the year before, she was in that very open draw, uh, lost the Siki in the semis. And yeah, she's had had some chances. And she, I, th- I think it's one of the things, I think she's a little bit like Andy Murray that sense I think she's going to keep putting herself in the late round of slams and you know eventually you're going to win it just based on rule of law of averages you put yourself in the semis seven times you're going to win once I mean sorry Elena Dementieva if that was actually your number but it, <laughs> it, it, should, it should happen you know if you keep putting yourself there that's why I always thought Murray was going to win one if he kept doing being a, a close but not no cigar well it's the same way yeah. she keeps doing that she's going to win one eventually um, it's just going to break her way. Other player you just mentioned who had a pretty remarkable two weeks is Caroline Wozniacki, who has risen from a spring ranking of number 18 all the way to up to 11 recently. Very good for Caroline. She is being coached by her father, who we are sitting very near in the photo <laughs> pit during the semifinal um, and watching him and Maria Chichak, chair empire, have various stare-downs and soft warnings and all sorts of fun stuff 
greatest match of the entire of the entire uh, week in Cincinnati was Chichak versus Wozniacki. It was amazing. It was so, it was so close. Not like he's really discreet about it. No, I mean, discreet, he no. is loud, and yeah. and uh, yeah, I mean, we were sitting right next to him, maybe like you know about I don't know two yards yeah. to his left or so, and. Um, and yeah, he, he's loud. He's 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 constantly it's not talking. Not as loud as Fan Grunfeld was. Though. No, he wasn't as loud as Fan Grunfeld was during the Sharapova Ivanovich match, but he was pretty darn loud. And yeah, I mean, Chichak was very rightfully staring him down, and, and very rightfully told Caroline to to tell him to, to keep it quiet, and she did. Um, yeah. And he didn't stop, but uh, he did for a little bit, and then he was back at it. But it was pretty funny. Yeah. So what do you make of Caroline's form here? Quarters in Montreal. Push Serena to 7-5 in the third. Semis in Cincinnati gets her first two top ten wins in over a year, beating uh, Radvanska and Kerber, both in straight sets. Then she loses to Serena, again taking a set. 6-4 in the third. 6-4 in the third. These are very respectable efforts. Breaking Serena seven times <clears throat> in that semifinal. That. That's right. Serena yeah. broke her eight times, but seven times oh. she broke her. And that was on a day when Serena really was serving okay. I mean, yeah, she was bad. she wasn't serving bad at all. So, you know, that was that's pretty impressive. I mean, I think that if at this point, if you're going to pick... Here's a question. Dark Horse for the U.S. Open. Do you pick Caroline or do you pick Anna? Oh. If, if those are the two options. That's that's close. Yeah, I know. That's not, really close. Easy. That's really close. Um, I would pick Caroline. I don't know. I I am. I, I think it's fifty fifty. It's a coin flip. That's a really good question. Okay. Well, we'll put that out to you guys. What do you guys think? Po- you know, let us know on Twitter. Put us post it on our Facebook page. Let us know what you think. But I think between those two, they had good summers. I think probably Caroline had the better summer technically because it was more consistent over over two weeks. Anna did play the three weeks in Stanford and uh, Montreal and didn't have great results at either of those two, although took Serena to three sets in a great match in Stanford, so nothing to be ashamed of in that loss. And then Montreal lost to Coco Vandeweghe in three sets, and her pinch nerve was acting up there. Makes the final in Cincinnati, beats Sharapova. Let's talk. I'm about ready. Are you ready? I'm almost ready. Okay, because about a few hours ago, Ben and I were driving, and Ben's driving. I'm sitting here staring out the window. Yep. But it was pretty dead silent in the car other than whatever music was playing. It was probably Lily Allen. And all of a sudden, Ben goes, but how really did Anna Ivanovich win that match? I mean, it is kind of, we're still working through it. Yeah. It's tough. It's not easy. But let's need, talk I need, about... I need to go to some sort of support group. Yeah, I know. Well, this is this is this where is we're going to okay. talk about it now. Talk it out. Okay. Okay. So Anna Ivanovich, Maria Sharapova, great semifinal. If you didn't get to watch it, please do pull it up. It is worth the near three hours of your time. Uh, brief synopsis of the match, Anna Ivanovich is, looks on her way to routing Sharapova. Killing leads, her! Absolutely destroying her. 6-2, four love up. Eventually goes 5-2 up, gets an opportunity to serve it out, and gets nervous. 5-3, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But gets nervous, and next thing you know, Sharapova takes the second set 7-5, looks to have all of the momentum on Ivanovich. Looks like she's on her way to a quintessential Ivanovich choke. Choke of the century, one might say. A choke of the century, one might say. Um, and yet somehow saves two match points in the third set and wins 7-5 in the third. We are, of course, skipping over a little You're thing that we're going we're gonna to get to, but I just wanted to, to lay the groundwork of the actual tennis in the match uh-huh. before I turn it over to you, Ben. Okay, so that's basically what happened. And on its own, scoreline, just watching a live score, this match would have been insane. Because you don't expect somebody to have that big a lead, collapse, and then kind of keep... And Sharapova got to 5-4 in the third of two match points. 
I don't get how Ana Ivanovich won this match. I still don't entirely get it whatsoever. And part of the explanation, I don't know, Sharapova seemed rattled by the thing we left out so far, which is that after the second set, Ana Ivanovich took a relatively lengthy bathroom break, or break off court, who knows what she was doing. She came back, Ivanovich held to open, then um, two points into Sharapova's service game, the second game of the third set, uh, Ivanovich suddenly doubled over between points and was like hunched on the ground and was like slowly walking to the chair. And then eventually the doctor came out and she was laying on the ground and took her blood pressure. Sharapova was fairly baffled by all this. Uh, and then eventually after a few minutes, it looked like maybe Ivanovich was going to retire. It was a little bit humid out. Who knows if she was dehydrated. What wasn't easy to tell. Uh, Ivanovich comes back out and plays pretty much fine the whole rest of the time. Uh, Sharapova was very remarkably, because we were sitting down at court level, so it's very easy to see this, between points, and then Sharapova never does this, Sharapova is staring at Ivanovich, like, what is up with you, girl, <laughs> essentially, it's like glaring at her, trying to figure out what was wrong, like some sort of, very much looking for a weakness she could exploit, looking for something that she could do. Well, and also just calling straight up bullshit, I yeah. mean, that's what, I mean, you know, Sharapova, after a long, lengthy rally, would kind of, like, look over her shoulder at Ivanovich, and with this look of like, you were freaking lying down, getting your blood pressure taken, and now you're running like a rabbit. Yeah. Like, bullshit. Like, none of this gamesmanship. And it should be pointed out that Sharapova did take a bathroom break between the first and second sets after she was uh, lost the first set 6 2. So, this is, that should set up a little bit. It wasn't like Ivanovich was the only one that took a bathroom break, but continue. No, there was drama on all yes. sides for sure. And I do think that it's totally fair with how the mid game medical timeout, especially, should be something acute and first so. I understand, especially because of that circumstance, why Sharapova was more baffled why Ivanovich was suddenly back to her springy self. Um, so if, uh, Sharapova gets a lead in the set. She gets up 4-2, and then uh, Ivanovich holds, and Sharapova breaks with the, breaks herself with a double fault. And afterwards, uh, and, and sarcastically, she glares at the chair empire and starts tapping her upper arm with her racket and says, hey, check, check her blood pressure, check her blood pressure. You know, just to make it clear that she thinks that Anna Bonovich was full of shit, yeah. I think, to put it in yes. in, in formal terms. Sharapova um, broke the next game, we got a 5-4, had two match points, and then Ivanovich eventually won. Um, Courtney, what did you make of that whole thing of... Check her blood pressure went fairly viral in tennis Twitter pretty quickly. It's sort of like a, a, a new... Um, like meme. A, a, new, a new meme, a new catchphrase a new carved in stone put down of the annals of women's tennis, which there is, you know, those are tablets that are revered by many. (laughs) Uh, What did you make of that whole incident, how Sharapova lashed out at Ivanovich in in that sarcastic sense? Well, I think that, I don't know about you, Ben, but I mean, sitting, we were sitting next to, to, to team Sharapova in the corner near them, yeah. near them. and uh, it was it was kind of coming I mean she was in a mood I mean that night Sharapova after losing the first set 6-2 she, well. she was not playing well uh, lots of unforced errors just not really able to get herself in the match and getting completely outplayed by Ivanovich um, I think Ben at one point you said you know this is just like 2008 French Open when on a like completely 07, yeah. 07 yeah completely blitzed her on the way to the final and yeah, I mean, it really did feel that way. So there was a lot of just, like, negativity coming from the Sharapova body language. Her camp was trying to vocally keep her into it. You know, Sven was yelling energy, focus, you know, all the way across the court. Barking. barking at it. Like, it was, like, kind of weird and a little awkward sometimes. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, it just, she was in a mood. And then once she was able to storm back and take that second set, 
it was like Pova was in the red. Like she was like all she saw, she was in like the heat of battle and the heat of competition. You know, I mean, I can understand why she was frustrated because she gets up a break, a, med- a break in the first set, or I'm sorry, she was up a break early in the third set, lost that break. She's up a break again, double faulted, loses that break. Eventually breaks Ivanovich, gets the opportunity to, to, to serve it out. But I think that like she had her leads and she kept like kind of messing it up. And, and it was really more on Maria. I mean, Anna was there, she was competing and Ben left this out. But, but as it would turn out afterwards, when um, we talked to Ivanovich, it turned out that it wasn't an issue of anxiety or, or anything like that. She said that she had been feeling ill that day, that she felt like she ate something weird and that before she had taken the medical time out, when her coach had come out in the second set, she had told her coach, like, I don't feel well. And it's not, it's, it's getting worse. So it was already something that she was kind of dealing with. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was all bubbling up and, and we've seen Maria pop off mid match, uh, before, but LA. you know, yeah. But the thing is, is that it's very rarely been against another player like post match. Yes. <laughs> you know, like whether in the press room or, uh, uh, extremely injured or okay. Sitting on a changeover is her last name. Yankovic, like that sort of stuff. But noticing the Azarenka pattern there. Exactly. Let's, let's see what the common, common theme was in all those. But to pop off against Ivanovich, who she's never really had like a public or private issue with. I mean, they're obviously not friends, but like she's just kind of like whatever. She's a, another player that's on, you know, the the on the other side of the court. Uh, was pretty pretty weird and uh, uncharacteristic. I thought it was it was uncharacteristically tacky from Maria to to make that move. But at the same time, I loved it, and I hope that everybody else does it too. <laughs> does it more? <laughs> like let's do it. Like let's have some trash talk on court. I say. That's what we were saying. I mean, for all the time we were saying this earlier on on this odyssey of a trip across uh, the Appalachian Mountains, that it'd be nice if there was somebody in the top five, let's say, who just spoke their mind constantly, and who wasn't. Obvious. I don't think Sheriff was the candidate for that because of how relatively corporate she can be about a lot of different things. But it was. It'd be nice if there was somebody who was more relevant than, let's say, a Golbus who is the closest thing we have to this on either tour right now, who was unafraid to call it like he sees it, or she sees it constantly. I mean, Serena, Serena always is very calculated what she says, and very cautious and very restrained, and, you know, doesn't give you anything near that. So for, in press anyway. So for Maria to show this, I don't know. I feel like if you have feelings, you know, share them with the class. That's my whole sort of feeling <laughs> when it comes to tennis, especially being a writer, I want, there to be stories and kept characters and conflict and stuff. I think it's well, what anyone, any sport wants, really. And, and that's the thing, too, is, like, I feel like I've, I've maybe said this on this podcast before, but I would like for tennis to kind of get out of this, like, we are a gentleman's game yeah. and we are ladies and yeah. this is what gentlemen and ladies do. And, like, you know, you watch football, you watch baseball, you watch basketball, and there's trash talking. You watch Little League cuss. World Series and they punch each other in the <laughs> Face. Accidentally, he that didn't was mean shocking. It. That was the most he shocking moment of the week. <laughs> that Texas kid clothesline that Pennsylvania kid in the face. We anyway. are maybe hosers for Pens- for 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 the Taney Dragons, though. So but show me the Monet. <laughs> show me the Monet. Um, but yeah, so you know, I don't mind that. Let's do that. Let's get those uh, those situations where Fetters telling to yelling Annie Murray to like he fucking moved or fucking you know stopped. he fucking stopped whatever it was. 
Um, let's get these, you know, when Novak kind of becomes like a bit of a jerk on court. I love it. Like, let's do it. And let's not castigate them for being what they are, which is hyper competitive athletes. Like, why do we want to muzzle them? Why do we want to put them in a straight jacket and tell them, okay, you can win, but you only have, but you can only, you're only allowed to win if you do it with like Use a white right hat form. on yeah. and you don't sweat. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, no, this is like, you know, in Andre Agassi's book, this is posh boxing. Like, you're boxing. Go out there and compete. And that's one of the things that I love about Sharapova is that when she is out there, you kind of forget all about corporate Pova. You do. And you, you just see this, like, scrapper who is not that great of an athlete who's just willing herself to win. So, yeah, there are going to be moments where she, like, flips a switch. But that's no different than the crap you see on a soccer field or a basketball court. And I don't think that it would take away from tennis if we saw more of this. And we used to see more of it plenty. I mean, like, obviously there was an era of men's tennis, which is not entirely, we shouldn't be exalting the era of Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe, but it was a thing that happened, Nastasi, but it was a thing that happened and it was a valid form of the sport. And it put butts in seats. And there's a happy middle ground, which we can slowly get to. Uh, Maria Sharapova, uh, speaking of Karpova, has a pop-up store uh, in Manhattan during the U.S. Open, and I'm just hoping they have free blood pressure readings available. New sugar, new sugar pova flavor, salty. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. Speaking of people who don't sweat, Roger Federer, who is sweatier than he used to be, I feel like, in his old age, but not still not, you know, profusely sweaty on any sort of human scale. <laughs> uh, had an extremely good two weeks, probably the best of anybody. Uh, he made the final of Toronto, losing to Songa, and then won Cincinnati, his first Masters title in two years, uh, since he won Cincinnati two years ago against Djokovic in the final. This year he beat, uh, in the quarters he beat Andy Murray, in the semis he beat Milos Raonic, and in the final he beat David Ferrer. Um, he goes into the US Open as a number two seed, and his odds are narrowing very quickly in terms of being the tournament favorite. Courtney, what have you seen from Federer? Um, I think it's very easy to draw parallels between him and Venus or Serena as the occasion uh, calls for. What do you see from him? Because he also had a really not good at all by his standards 2013, and here he is back to being number two seed at a major pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, four straight finals, right, dating back to Halle. Yep. Um, so that's pretty darn good and putting himself in position to, to do well. And that's, again, what we were saying about Venus, right? I mean, you put yourself in the final, you know, you give yourself a chance. And, and with getting the number two seed after Rafael Nadal has formally withdrawn from the U.S. Open, as it was announced this morning, uh, this is being recorded on Wednesday, on Monday, um, that's huge. I think for him, not having to, to face potentially Novak Djokovic until the final. And knowing um, Rafa can't, he can't face him at any point. Exactly. I mean, he's not there. The boogeyman Ex is not in the closet. Exactly. So so that's that's really big for him. So, you know, I mean, I think that um, he's playing well now. You know, obviously everything's different once we get to best of five. Um, and But what, it was, what impressed me with his run in Cincinnati is that he was able to bounce back so quickly from Toronto, that his body held up, that, you know, he said he was tired when he got there. He said he almost didn't play. He thought about pulling out um, and just decided to give it a go. And, and, and he didn't have an easy draw. He had Gal, no. Gal Malfis. Um, Pospisil first, yeah, Malfis second. Exactly. That's not easy. Murray third. That's a really tough draw. Yeah, that, that wasn't and easy at all. last two rounds were not. I mean, Ronish is not a particularly tough semi. Ferrer, who he's now 16-0 against, is not a particularly tough final. Although Federer almost did manage to get bageled midway through that final, which was surreal. Um, 
It was not a <laughs> religious experience uh, of Federer. Yes, this was him looking sharp and him looking like once he got to the semis, we were like, yeah, Federer's going to win this. Yeah. And it was Federer being a lock in a way that we haven't seen in a relevant tournament in two years. Yeah. Since he lost number one ranking. Now, all that said, like, I don't, I mean, obviously we'll have to wait and see how the tournament plays out, but I don't know what I think if he plays a Vavrinka, if he plays a Djokovic, if he plays... Uh, Burdick slumping, but if he plays a Songa, if he play, sure. you know, I mean, even if he plays a Murray, Dimitrov, a Dimitrov, right? You know, I mean, against you know those guys, but one of the big kind of, depending on how you see it, either this is really frustrating or it's really exciting, is that outside of Roger, we didn't really find out much um, about the men's field going into the Open over the last two weeks. We didn't find out much good. I think we found out a fair amount of shakiness sure. from Novak Djokovic, who lost his second match in Canada to Sanga getting killed 2-2, two and two, I think. Uh, Sanga on route to winning that title. So shout-out to Joe. I'm not sure what else to say about Joe, but that was a tremendous, you know, out of out of nowhere tournament for Sanga beating Djokovic, Murray, Dimitrov and Federer back to back to back to back that's huge, that's really impressive totally huge, then you know obviously came to Cincinnati, lost I think all of the all, everybody who made the semifinals are better in Toronto except for Federer lost in their opening round matches yeah. um, in, in, in Cincinnati so you know on some level you, you just chalk that up to the change in it he had a tough, uh, tough schedule because I don't think he had a bye Right, so, he had to play Tuesday. Yeah, he had to play immediately, so that's fine. But, you know, I mean, do I trust Joe to be an actual threat at the U.S. Open? I'm not going to use no. one week to say yes. You know what I mean? Like, that was an amazing run. But it, the psychology of, of Sangha is a little bit... I'm more inclined to say, like, he's not going to be hungry. At the, he's not going to feel like he needs to prove anything at the Open and um, isn't going to have that edge. That's just what I think. I, I would love to be proven wrong. I think I've always been really big on Joe and always thought that he was an underachiever and yeah. that there was so much more to his game and so much more to him. But uh, right now, if I had to put money on it, I, I don't see him doing uh, replicating his Toronto success in New, in New York. And I will say on Joe, we said on the podcast a few episodes ago that I really thought that he had missed his window of opportunity in terms of being able to contend at these big tournaments and win a slam make a slam final or be a relevant player again i mean he's 29 i think now close to that and yeah and he had real chances a lot of times to break through to be the guy who busted the big four open he was probably the best bet for quite a few years he didn't do it then out of nowhere he wins this tournament i don't know i give him i think his momentum shouldn't be too broken by the cincinnati loss if he gets on a roll and really starts playing well um and gets the right sort of quarter like if he's in the valrinka quarter i could totally I would make a 50-50 at worst reposition. Yeah, Ferrer will have his own quarter at the U.S. Open. And we're back to those days. Um, yeah, that could... Hey, there's, there's some openings for, for Sango. The only people who I wouldn't... And then Djokovic, which we were going to start talking about. Djokovic was terrible. I mean, he was really, really bad in the tournaments he played. He has not played a good match. No. This is the thing. This not even a, close to this isn't, a, this isn't an instance of, like, an Andy Murray, who obviously disappointing losses to Songa in three sets um, after having a lead uh, in Toronto and then also uh, having a double break 4-0 lead on Federer in the second set uh, and then just completely playing crap tennis yeah. and losing in straight sets. But at least in the matches leading up to that, he played good tennis, Andy yeah. Murray did. I mean, that was a great match against Isner in Cincinnati. That was the best match of the tournament, I think. Pure quality, Isner 
Murray was incredible. Right, and that's saying a lot because <laughs> just John, John was involved, and, and but it was great. Somebody gets those kind of reviews, right? But yeah. but he was great, and so Andy has at least played good matches. He's just struggling with consistency. Novak Djokovic has played four matches on the U.S. hard courts, and not a single one of them has been clean. Um, you know, he beat Gilles Simone, but was taken to three sets. Um, uh, he beat uh, Gael Monfils in um, Toronto, but that was a three-setter that he could have lost. He went to a third-set tiebreak. Yeah. So, you know, there hasn't been a singular dominating performance, and, and he was, he was pissed. He was Robredo. Yeah, he was pissed after losing to Robredo, too. Yeah, I mean, that's a bad, bad loss. He's been trying to get uh, to win all nine Masters, be the first guy to do it. He's the closest anybody's ever been. Just Cincinnati is all he needs. He's made the final four times. So for him to come up, come here and re- come here, I mean, we're <laughs> come 400 miles in our rearview mirror to Cincinnati <laughs> and flop. I mean, really don't see well with him. And hopefully he gets his footing for the U.S. Open. I mean, he'll get, this is the thing with these Masters tournaments. You get tougher draws off the bat than you get at slams. I mean, Monfils, who was his first draw, I think will be seated maybe at the U.S. Open, at least close to it. Uh, you know, Robredo, Sanga, he won't play those guys for a while. Uh, but at the U.S. So the U.S. Open, he'll get to feel his way through the draw. He might get, I don't know, insert Lukas Lachko first round or someone someone not too scary to start off with. So it's time to get his footing, but he really needs to because this was his poor tennis from Djokovic, yeah. for lack of a better term. And, yeah, he's the favorite. He's the number one seed. He's the best on hard courts on the tour in this era. But, wow, this was – he needs to watch this taste out of his mouth quickly. Yeah, for sure. And it, it could be – you know, the, the, the run that I could see him having was is similar to, gosh, what year was it? I'm horrible with your youth, you guys. I'm sorry. Okay. But the year where he almost lost it and should have lost to Troisky. Oh, that was 2010. Okay. So, and and he won in 2010, didn't he? No, he made the final loss to Rafa. That was the third slam Rafa won that year. Okay. And he well, won fine. it in 2011. But, it, but I remember that when that happened and how he should have lost that match, but that match oh, that he won it. choked like a dog. Totally choked. But he got through it, yeah. and that really kind of propelled him to the final and um, I could see Novak kind of having a similar situation here where there would be one key match where he is up against it early on and if he can get through that I think that 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 from there he'll be a lock to make the final but um, yeah he just hasn't been playing good tennis and that's what's really worrisome. Uh, we were in Frederick, Maryland. I used to play hockey here. Shout out Frederick. But yeah I totally agree. Um, other topic we mentioned for the U.S. Open is Rafael Nadal who pulled out this morning. Uh, we, this was not a surprise whatsoever because he had previously pulled out of Toronto and Cincinnati with a right wrist injury. Um, he had been practicing. There were some fans who were observing him practice pretty closely. He had been practicing with a, a sort of a, a splint, it's called, on his uh, right wrist and wasn't hitting two-handed backhands during practice. So, yeah. So Rafa is out. What do you think this means for... Rafa, first of all, and then how does it impact the field? I mean, obviously, it's a big win for as we are big. It doesn't suck for Federer. No, definitely doesn't suck for Roger Federer. I think that that's the first kind of instinct. I think it's obviously really disappointing for the tournament yeah. to not have the defending champion there and a fan favorite and somebody who you know is an absolute game changer when he's in the field, given yeah. his head-to-heads against you know uh, everybody. Uh, everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that that that's major. But it's good to see him continue. I think to make the right calls with respect to his body, so that there you know he isn't pushing it. I think that. Um, you know, once he, because I think the beginning of last week, his um, PR manager, Benito, you know, sent out a tweet saying he was going to make a decision at the end of the week. Then at the end of the week on Friday, he sent out another tweet saying, actually, we're going to postpone that decision till next week. And I think that at that point, you had to know 
the Roth is not playing the open. Bad news. I mean, Bad you know, like how how can you be possibly like if you got the checkup that week or last week and you already were like, well, let's give it a couple of more days, then it's it's not looking good. So no major surprise, but it does mean that, as Ben was saying, uh, Roger Federer does get the number two seed, and also Rafa's not in the draw, so that's good for Roger. David Ferrer goes from number five to a number four seed, which is obviously big for him. He'll get his own quarter. Andy Murray goes from number nine to a number eight seed, securing a top eight seed, which is huge for him. Yeah. Um, and uh, it also means down to the 16s, I believe Tommy Robredo is now a top 16 okay. seed, um, which is, uh, I don't know, a thing. It's a thing, <laughs> it's a thing that happened. Also, Kenny DeShepard got in the draw. Yes, Kenny, which I love Ricky Diamond's tweet that, that Rafa out, Kenny DeShepard in, worst trade since since the Red Sox sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees. So Tremendous tweet, Ricky. Tremendous, tremendous. tweet. Tremendous tweet, Ricky. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, it, it's unfortunate because I think that it, it obviously impacts the field. It's a less star-studded field, and I would have really like to see what, what Rafa could have done with no hard court play and go in there and see if he could tear it up. And if there was a player in the field that I think that could actually do that on the men's side, it would be him. I would love to see him try to play with one hand behind his back. Like, let's see one-handed backhand Rafa. It'd be awesome. It'd be a novelty. Why not? Be fun. He's got a great slice. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I do think Rafa's withdrawal does make for a very even draw. Yeah. And I think a balanced draw. Um, because there is always that issue because it's only, you know, because Federer would have been a three seed and, you know, which side would he land on? Obviously, that would be the tougher side. Actually, and Djokovic shaky. I mean, yeah. the draw could really implode. Um, yeah, it's not, this is not a typical 20, uh, 2009 through 2012 draw anchored by the big four. This is a mess of the draw <laughs> relatively with all the three remaining big three having major question marks about them. Federer's question marks being more about, like, I can't keep up this play having played ten matches in 13 days or whatever it was in Canada and Cincinnati and, you know, the ghost of Robredo's past or whatever else happened at the U.S. Open. Um, can he be that he won't be solid? put. He won't be put on Armstrong or Grandstand, that's for sure. That did not work out well. Other thoughts, players to watch U.S. Open? Anyone we haven't mentioned yet? Anything? Uh, we'll do another show once the draw comes out, once we get to New York, but thoughts on everything else heading into the U.S. Open, to New Haven, to Winston-Salem, to all that Here's, here's a question. Stuff. Yeah, here's a question I'll pose to you, Ben. Uh-huh. At this point, yeah. who do you think will get further uh, at the U.S. Open? Sloane Stevens or Eugenie Bouchard? It's a good question. I will pick Jeannie because Jeannie has played great the majors this year. She's made semi-semi-final. Um, and I believe she finally got off the schneid by beating, uh, she was leading, I think we checked at our rest stop in Cumberland area, uh, she was beating Jovanovski in New Haven, so she kind of shook off the cutwaves a little bit. She played fine against Kuznetsova in Cincinnati, Kuznetsova was playing really well, um, and Sloan, Sloan's also playing well, but hasn't had any results. I mean, she's played two very solid matches against Elena Yankovic and lost both in Toronto and Cincinnati, and had a decent enough uh, three-set loss to Christina McHale in D.C., which was, I mean, everybody loses to McHale at some point. It's just kind of a rite of, <laughs> kind of a rite of passage on the tour. Really, you know, it is. McHale gonna happen. McHale happens. And, yeah, so I think they'll both do well, but I think Jeannie will have a much better draw because of her seed. Mm. Hell, let's have them play each other. That's a great fourth round. Let's do it, you let's guys. I've, I've wanted to play for so long. They played two times in Asia. Neither streamed, both on outer courts. Um, it's about time we see those two kids go head-to-head on a big stage. Let's do it. I would sign that change.org petition. <laughs> Fair enough. I actually will. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'll say that I, I, I would pick Sloan to do better than Jeannie. Why? 
I, I've just been really impressed by the way that she's kind of turned things around the last, I mean, okay, I mean, yes, okay, Jeannie's had her results at the majors, obviously very, very good, Sloan setting aside her poor Wimbledon loss, and it wasn't really that poor, it was to Maria Kirilenko, like well. tough draw, um, but still made second second weeks at both the Australian Open and the French Open. Um, you're right, I think that if, if, if I were to do this kind of empirically, I would say that Jeannie will make it further because of her draw, um, because she will be have more um, draw protection, uh, being a higher seed, but I just think that Sloan's playing the right way, um, and, and two losses to Yelena Yankovic in the last couple weeks um, aren't necessarily bad, um, and she's already won more matches over the American hardcourts or North American hardcourts than Jeannie has, so she, as of right now, depending on what happens in New Haven, so... Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that, you know, given the, the right draw, um, I don't know. I, I've kind of got a feeling about that Sloan Stevens. I feel like there's there's a bit to prove this time in New York, more so than she has needed to prove in the last seven, six slams. Okay, that's very fair. Here's another head-to-head for you, just because these are fun. How about who does better at the U.S. Open? Uh, we're going to put this between the two Americans in the top 20, not named Serena. Isner or Venus? Oh. Does better. I'm going to go Venus. Show your work. I just think that the margins for her to win are bigger. Okay. Than for Isner. And and that's always going to be an issue. So with John, he can always, you know, come up against somebody um, tough. He's also playing this week in Winston-Salem. Um, he hasn't had a ton of match play this summer, so oh, it's not going to be an issue. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to be an issue necessarily, but it is always, you know, a bit of a concern to go in and to a major playing multiple matches uh, the week before. So there is also that. But I mean, he you always uh, get cold shot or third round. This is always what kills him there, anyway. Exactly. So yeah, I think that there's just more of a safety net for Venus in the first few rounds than there is for John. I'm going to say push. They'll I do, didn't know that was an option. They'll do exactly the same. That's always an option. Uh, push. Uh, push. Fourth cheater. round for both. Push. Cheater. Cheater. Wasn't it was a little bit of Twitter debate about um, over this week during some of the slow periods, because it wasn't the most fascinating weekend since the outside of that Sharapova-Ivanovich match, was the upcoming U.S. Davis Cup tie in Chicago in September, where the U.S. is in a playoff match to stay in the World Group, and they haven't fallen out of the World Group in a long time. But to stay in, they have to beat the mighty Slovaks who are coming to Chicago, uh, armed with Klezan and Lachko and nobody else. Um, the team will almost certainly be John Isner at the helm. And one would assume the Bryans anchoring doubles, as they have for so many ties in a row, except for very briefly after Michaela Bryan was born, I believe. And uh, they only sent one Bryan to Switzerland to beat Switzerland in Switzerland. But there was some thought because the number two American is very, very debatable right now. There's a lot of very similar or very even options right now. I mean, you, Steve Johnson, who's the I think the highest ranked of the group um, of three. Then there's Donald Young, who's in the top 50. And then a little bit outside the top 50 is Jack Sock. People are very high on He's played well in doubles, even if he hasn't had quite the singles scouts. He beat Isner in Newport on grass, for what that's worth. And then you could also throw in, like, Sam Quare if you wanted a fourth name in there, who's had good singles results in Davis Cup in the past, decent enough anyway, has experience in Davis Cup, uh, has not played very well, but is still in the top 60, not too far behind the other guys in the rankings. And so there's some thought that maybe this would be a time, because the U.S. should be relatively safe against Slovakia, 
that the Bryans might not be the best choice because they take up two of the four spots, and it might be better to have singles options to, say, bring both Johnson and Sock along and have one of them with Isner or without Isner combined to play doubles as well uh, on the team. So what this is a very American-centric, specific incident-looking-forward thing, but, according, what would you do if you were Captain Jim Courier? I would bring the Bryans, and I think that it's absolutely insane to suggest otherwise. Why? Because I think that, first of all, why the hell would you roll the dice? I mean, like, if the, U- the U.S. lose, that would not be very good. That would be very poor uh, if the U.S. were to lose to Slovakia. Um, you can always count on the Bryans for their for that point, the doubles point, which is always huge. It's kind of the swing point. Um, and, you know, I mean, so long as they want to play, I mean, obviously, if they go to Captain Courier and say, nah, you know, we'd prefer to take the week off, then fine. And they don't want to do that. They, they're very excited to play in Chicago. They've made that very clear when I brought this up uh, after they won their 99th title in Cincinnati. Very nice. Beating, beating possible sock in the final. Right. So, yeah, so I don't think that if, if the Bryans want to play, you bring them. And, and uh, if anything, because there does need to be some leadership on that team, it's a fairly, not that John Isner's young, but in terms of Davis Cup experience, it's not a particularly experienced team. So I think that you absolutely take the Bryans, you take Isner, and I don't know, take Sock. Well, I don't know. Between Sock and Johnson, I don't really have a preference either way, simply because if John Isner can't pull off both of those singles wins, I don't really know if we have any business beating Slovakia in the first place. (laughs) So there you go. So I, I say, why not take Isner and... I'll say Isner, Johnson, and the Bryans. That's probably fair. I think that's a fair... That's totally probably the right, most rational call. I just think it'd be interesting because what happened in... What happened against Great Britain in February was a disaster of horrible proportions. Everything went completely wrong, and it made somehow being in Sochi even more bleak watching that happen. Uh, the field we, was nice. The, the, or, sorry, the, the court, court the whole at Petco was, Park. That's what made it so awful, was that we had this, the best ever venue we probably had for, in my tennis consciousness, for U.S. Davis Cup tie, and it was squandered with Isner getting hurt and then Quarry losing to James Ward. Ugh, it was dark. <laughs> uh, but, yes, the, so, yeah, I think to salvage something, that's the safe pick. And I do agree with you, if Isner can't, Managed to be both Klezan and Lashko, or if there's some other Slovak sub who emerges from the darkness of the forests of eastern Slovakia, then yeah, then that they we don't deserve to be in the World Cup at all. Uh, yeah, I just think that if why not? I think the Brian. I think they're always the best luck to win doubles, but I think the doubles is only 20% of the tie. They have them take a 50% of the spot just for that one match. It's not always great math. When you could have something. Like to use an analogy from or a, a scenario from Fed Cup that happened a couple years ago, where it was USA versus Sweden. They had a very loaded team, and Sloan was in kind of a slump and got to play the first match and went out and lost to Sofia Arvidsson, I believe, and didn't play very well at all. Um, and then she was able to get subbed out for Venus. There's no sub in Chicago if you take the Bryans. Basically, you're riding whatever singles guy it is, uh, Sock, Johnson, whatever, and if they get hurt, you're completely screwed. And if you need that match, that, that fifth rubber. But, yeah, you shouldn't need it. But I don't know. I just think it's an interesting sort of scenario. And, obviously, what the Bryans have done in their careers is massively underappreciated. Uh, and they deserve all the respect in the world. But, yeah, just doing the math, I don't think. Especially because I looked at Slovakia. It doesn't have anybody in the top 90 in doubles, I don't think. So, I feel like any pairing, Johnson-Sock, Johnson-Query, plays a lot together. 
throw, you know, a Buterak or a Scott Lipsky in there and give them a shot at, at playing a Davis You're Cup insane. for once. Why would you, you would never roll the dice. You would simply just not roll the dice. Like, this isn't a second round, or like a first round, like, Davis Cup tie or, like, whatever. I mean, it, like, there are stakes. I mean, if they lose, they get relegated. So, like, if anything, you bring the team that you could, that can win, that has the highest possibilities. This is not an opportunity to, like, you know get somebody experience just for the hell of it and I think that also I think that it's a huge blow to team morale if you're looking at the situation and being like yeah you know what we're gonna build our team assuming that like our singles players can't pull it off that's fair and one thing that Brian suggested the team do and they might well do this is invite Johnson and Sock and Clary or and Young or whatever and have them all sort of just like play and train on the site and then by the time the draw ceremony comes around pick whoever's playing best whoever matches up best against whatever the Slovak roster looks to be do it that way, so that's probably fine. But yeah, I just thought it was an interesting sort of mini thing. We don't usually go too much to Davis Cup game theory, but you know, it was a thing that happened. Davis Cup game theory is like, yeah, I don't know. It's it's so. At the end of the day, everything's like really fun to think about in theory, but the stakes are usually too high to actually do anything like like to actually be like a maverick captain and make like some like completely like insane, you know substitution call more often than not like you set your roster with the people who, who brought you there so simple enough there you go before we sign off we wanted to issue a little bit of a correction or clarification Courtney take it away Yes. So a couple of podcasts ago, we were talking about Wimbledon and talking about the press system at Wimbledon, how press conferences are organized, how they're moderated, how they're requested, how they're run. And both Ben and I said that neither of us had ever seen a female moderator, meaning a female member of the All England Club, moderating a press conference. In and the main room. In the main room. And honestly, I've never seen one. I haven't seen one either. Right. And granted, we have only been covering for a few years. We do not have the vast experience of, you know, f you know, years and years and years of experience. But we did end up getting an email from our colleague, Sandy Harwit, um, who pointed out that sh there have been female members of the All England Club and that they have moderated press conferences. Uh, in the main room. We also reached out to um, our friends Julie Rabe and Linda Christensen, who are the transcriptionists, or two of a few of the transcriptionists. And past NCR guests. And past NCR guests, um, to ask them. Obviously, they're in the room all the time, so they see every single press conference. Um, you know, whether or not there have been female moderators, they said yes. So there you go. There have been female moderators at the All England Club, uh, just Ben and I, for as many press conferences as we go to, have never seen one. So, there you go. They apparently exist. The truth is out there. Um, so. <laughs> You're not even the one doing the X-Files rewatch. I know, but I'm the one who has to be with the person who's doing the X-Files rewatch constantly, <laughs> which is just as engrossing. It really is. It really is. Uh, I can't escape whatever, it. Whatever, dude. I use headphones. Trust no one. Um, thank you for listening. We can always trust you guys to be awesome, and thank you for doing so once again. If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening to us directly, you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Podcast to get updates and occasional other bonus content that's been a while. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com, or at NCR underscore tennis is usually how you, we say that part. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, the podcast app, whatever other downcast, etc., podcast service platform thing you use to get your podcast fixes we're on there and our RSS feed is available also if you want to go you know 
beta or whatever. And then you can also send us any questions you have for future episodes through our email address, nochallengesremaining at gmail.com, and we will get to those hopefully next time we do a questions episode or if they become relevant at a sooner time. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We will see you in New York. We are at exit 6 of 270, which is West Montgomery Avenue. I used to work off this exit in downtown Rockville, which is very nice. And we hope you guys have a lovely time, and we'll see you in New York. Bye, guys. Bye. Too. She called her coach on the court, and I was like, "Okay, well, that's usually not a great sign when you're serving, when you're a game away from winning the match." So, um, you know, I, the match is never in tennis over until you actually finish it. And I've been in those positions before, um, and it was only one break in that second set, and I, I really felt like if I started making a few returns, making her play, um, maybe I'd get an opportunity, and I did. And there's slam up ahead. What were your thoughts on the timeout she took uh, early in the third set in the game? I never actually got a clear answer on what it was, but I mean, I don't know, it could have been something like an anxiety something, or um, I'm not really sure what you take blood pressure for, but we played a pretty long point afterwards, and she seemed to be doing well, so I'm not really sure what was going on there. ESPN did pick up some video of you kind of tapping your shoulder and, and saying check her blood pressure in the middle of the, the third set when you just kind of just angry or, or, or just put off by, by what she had done? Um, it was just a strange timing um, and I'm not sure kind of how it happened. It just kind of came out of nowhere um, and just don't know what to do in that situation because you either sit down or they're going to take a medical timeout, but then they don't, so then you got to get up and then you got to serve it's 15-all. So it was just the timing was a bit strange, but she looked like she was okay. So it, it, after a minute, she was good, and then, but before that, she wasn't. So it must have been something that was like anxious or anxiety. That's the only thing I can think of, really. Did that, that sort of distract you or put you off at all for the remainder of the I match? Think, I think I won that game. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean obviously it's it adds something to to the game. You know, all of a sudden there's an interruption. You don't know what's going on. Is it an injury? And and then you don't get a clear answer on what it is. I don't think they even knew. So that's that's the tricky part, I guess.